Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is episode number 104. How are you, Ben? I'm very well today. Ben has a new microphone. I've got a big announcement to make. I will be heard. <laughs> I will be heard. We have From heard you. Forth, I will be heard. I will not be silenced. We've, we have heard your feedback. Very, very uh, consistent feedback that we needed to up the ante on particularly Ben's audio. And he has a new microphone, so hopefully... We the bullet and we made an, a purchase. We made, we made a purchase with minimal stress, really. Uh, but that's actually one of the things that we've discovered, the survey that, that a lot of you have already completed. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been... It's very, very helpful. So helpful. And we're going to put up all the results on the Jackrabbit FM website too. Once we've sifted through the one hundred, the hundreds of uh, responses. Yeah. But that was one of the biggest things that we, we got feedback on and there was no point waiting until the end of September to act on it. So from now on, you'll hear more of the dulcet tones of Benjamin McCallery. Correct. What else is awesome is the conversation that I have to share with you guys today I sat down with Carolyn Tate uh, earlier this week, actually, and our conversation was so good and so uh, not unexpectedly deep. I knew she would have heaps to share, but I just, I, I just to dig up something that I say pretty much every episode, could have spoken to her for hours. And I actually have booked in a second conversation with her for uh, tomorrow. So we're going to be doing a double part. Is this the first time we've done a double part? I think it might have been. Yeah. might be, yeah. Carolyn is the founder of the Slow School of Business in Melbourne. She has an amazing story of her own to share about how she went from a marketing executive in Sydney to establishing the Slow School of Business in Melbourne and what happened in the, the years in between for her to change so completely. But she's also one of the founders of Conscious Capitalism Australia and that's what we're going to talk about in the second part of our conversation. But today she and I talk about what it looks like to build a slow life based around purpose. And, you know, I talk a lot about the idea of finding your why and working with your why. Yeah. And this is something that she and I had so much to, to kind of dig into because she's so focused on helping people realize their purpose and then creating a life surrounding and, you know, building on that purpose. Awesome. Sold. So it's such Let's a great conversation. It. Yeah. No, seriously, it's it's I don't want to kind of spoil too much of it. If you want to learn more about Carolyn, though, head to slowschool.com.au. That's obviously for the Slow School of Business. They put on events and workshops and dinners and things like that. From there, you'll also find links to her personal website, which is carolyntate.co.co. She's written books. She has one, a new one coming out in December, which she and I talk about a little and in the show notes, I'll include a link to the Conscious, Capital Conscious Capitalism website, mm -hmm. as well as, uh, you know, a few other things that she and I mentioned in today's conversation. But it is such a cracker. I feel like we're on a golden run at the moment with shows. Look like it's 18 months long, this golden run. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy part one.
Hi, Brooke. I'm great. Thanks. Thank you so much for um, for talking with me this morning. We've just had a bit of a chat before we hit record, and I'm so excited to to dig into your story and what it is that you do. You know, and I'm yeah, I'm just really I'm really excited to to be chatting with you. And likewise, I'm excited to be chatting back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've actually spent quite a lot of time last year and this year perusing your website and you know learning a bit about what you do which is quite varied. I mean, at the moment, you're, you're one of the founders of the Slow School of Business and of Conscious Capitalism uh, in Australia. You're a speaker, you're an author, and you're someone who's really passionate specifically about helping people and businesses unearth their purpose. There's so much just in that one sentence that I could dig into, but I just wanted to talk about you personally for a sec to kind of give people an idea of where you're coming from and and maybe why this is something that you're so passionate about. Have you always been attracted to the philosophy of of slow in, you know, in business or in life? Or was there a time when it wasn't on your radar at all? Mm, No, there was a, there was definitely a time where it wasn't on my radar. And um, probably I flicked the slow switch on probably in about 2010 so I'd been a marketer for about 20 years and uh, was very much in the fast life in Sydney, lived in Coogee by the beach, you know, very uh, doing a lot of wonderful, great things in business mm-hmm. and doing them all pretty fast, mm-hmm. mind you. And uh, in 2010, I got to a point where I just, you know, I was asking myself, what's the point? I'd fallen out of love with marketing as a profession. Um, you know, I was a bit sick and tired of, of, of helping people market products and services I actually didn't believe in um, and contributing to the marketing pollution in the world. I was in a bit of a unhealthy, not a bit, a pretty destructive, unhealthy love affair that really wasn't helpful. Mm. I'd been a single mum for about 13 years and I felt like I pretty much was just peddling constantly to keep ahead of the mortgage, to keep ahead of, of motherhood, all of those sorts of things. And uh, there was a point in 2010 I just woke up and I said, right, is, it, if, is this all there is to life? And um, the answer to that was no. Within 90 days I sold my home, I gave away all my possessions, I got rid of the toxic man in my life and uh, I moved with my son to live in Aix-en-Provence in the south of France uh, for six months. I think that that was kind of my, that's when I turned the slow switch on. Mm. What what a massive turnaround, you know, and I think you mentioned kind of asking yourself that question, is, is this all it is? And I think everyone can relate to that moment or that, that realisation that, are you sure this is what it's all about? But I think what you did was turn around and do something so massive and wonderful to to answer your own question you know which I think Mm. is something that a lot of people have a lot of fear about you know what (laughs) what the answer might actually be and what it requires of us to to change what was the response in your friends and family like your, your circles of people when you decided to just completely let go and see what see what was on the other side yeah, I guess I, there was a polarised reaction to what I was doing. I mean, the first thing was I was taking my 12-year-old son away from his father for six months mm-hmm. to live in France. So 
so that was a big hurdle to get over, although he was very supportive and and um, Billy's stepmother was supportive as well and encouraging. And um, I actually write about how supportive they were in my book, actually. And I couldn't have done that, obviously, without their support. So, yeah, there was some support from the people that mattered most, I guess. Mm. Um, but then there were always those outliers on the outside who would, were, were kind of judgmental. Oh, you're selling your house and it's an asset and, you know, shouldn't you just be renting it out and, and keeping that asset? Because, you know, so there were all the kind of rational, functional head-based people in my life that were probably found it challenging because it was pretty radical to just give everything up and start over again. So, yeah, I found there were two camps of people in my life and uh, the ones that really mattered were the most supportive. That's wonderful. I mean, to, to have that, that support from, as you say, the people who are the, the most important because uh, I think sometimes people make those decisions or they, they're afraid to make those decisions because they don't think that they'll have that support. Yeah. You know, how... You spent your six months in the south of France, which would have been incredible. Like, what a what a wonderful thing to do for yourself and your son. Mm-hmm. What changed while you were over there, and you know, when you when you returned to Australia over time? Like what? How different was life from that point on? Wow, everything. What changed? You know, and I don't advocate for everyone to run away. In some, you know, some ways I think I was running away and in other ways I think I was just being courageous and making a great decision to change things. But I think what that time in France did, and I didn't actually work while I was away, so I wrote a book. I was able to pick a project of my absolute passion. My number one passion is writing. And so I was able to focus on something that was really meaningful to me while I was away. And it enabled me to get in flow. And what I mean by being in flow is doing what I loved and then developing a lot of practices around what I loved to support that. So while I was away, I got deeply into meditation. I really practiced, um, I, I read The Artist's Way as I was actually in, in France. M- many of your listeners would possibly know that mm. book. Um, so I practiced that book as I was writing my book. I really became aware of the senses, obviously being in a foreign country where you couldn't hear, and I couldn't speak the language, by the way, so, you know, it was a bit limiting. I didn't really know anyone either, so, you know, it was, it was quite, um, quite a shock. Um, but I really was able to connect into my senses a lot, as you would imagine, in a French town with the farmers' markets and the cafes and everyone smoking and the language and just like the sensory capacity really was heightened in that that period. I really got into yoga. Um, nothing better than listening to your yoga teacher give you instructions for a downward-facing dog in French. Um <laughs> I I really, um, I guess, immersing yourself in another culture, I think most of us go around blind. You know, we, we can walk past something or go our usual route to work or school every day and not even notice the blossom on the tree or the, the smell or whatever. And so I think it reconnected me to the beauty of every day. Mm, that is so, that's such a beautiful like realisation and something you just said is I'm, I'm a huge advocate for just those tiny moments of paying attention to the things that we see every day and realizing that there's beauty in them or there's something, you know, special to them. And yeah. I think people talk about mindfulness as this really buzzwordy kind of 
fix-all umbrella term for meditation and yoga and all these different kind of exercises and practices. But really, to me, mindfulness is simply the opposite of mindlessness, which is what so many of us do. And, you know, we find ourselves just wandering through, not paying attention. And I think mm. kind of just picking up on those those senses, you know, the, the smells and the sights and things that we just often don't don't pay attention to mm. is key. That's, yeah, that's such a beautiful realization to have made. Well, it's it's almost like I was using. I was talking to a, a woman just before I got on this call with you, and I we were talking about the analogy of uh, most of us are on a freeway. You know, we're on a freeway. There's cars buzzing past. We've got signs in front of us telling us how far we have to go, how many kilometers, where we're going to, and and we're kind of not even noticing the journey. We're just kind of so focused on the destination. And I'd like to think that my life is more of a meandering backcountry road. You know, where I can pull up my car and get out and look at the flowers and pat the cows and 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 kind of get back in my car and meander a bit more. Um, with a general idea of what my destination is but not too wedded about when I'm going to get there or exactly where I'm going or where mm. I'll be sleeping that night or, you know. So so I think I think that to me is is how I'd like to think that I live more, more of my life on the country lane than on the freeway. And that in and of itself is a real letting go, isn't it, you know, of, of not having all the answers, of not necessarily knowing the specific outcome. But being yeah. okay with that, or being more than okay with that, choosing to to do that. Yeah, I, I look, and I, I think that you know our modern day world. If there's one thing that we want, we want certainty. <laughs> and so you know, from the minute we're born, we're we you know we choose our kindergarten, we choose our school, we choose our university, we choose our partner, we choose to have kids, we choose to get married etc and our whole life is set up with this enforced expectation that we have to make a choice about that next thing in our life and we've lost the capacity for curiosity mm. because the opposite of curiosity is certainty and and so we're no longer curious we just want things to be we want to know the answers to everything and we're really not comfortable with being uncomfortable and not knowing yeah i mean that that's that's absolutely right and it's uh you know, it's a bit of a tangent to what I was going to ask next, but it's also this, uh, you know, this this lack of critical thought, I think, that so many of us, we just don't have. And I feel like there was a whole generation or two who were raised without necessarily engaging in this idea of questioning, you know, and, and thinking critically. It was more, a, and not even just in terms of education, but just in terms of how we approach life. Uh, it was by rote, you know, and this mm. is what you do and this is the next thing and this is what successful people aim for and this is how, you know, and it, it was just this process and I think somewhere along the way we've started to realise that that process is life, you know, it's life isn't at the end of that process. Like you don't tick all the boxes and get to the end and say, great, now I get to start. You know, it's it's actually that that is what what makes up life so it's really mm -hmm. interesting for me to kind of start to see people and myself specifically engage with this questioning and this curiosity that uh wasn't necessarily encouraged as a, you know when I was younger 
Oh, actually, curiosity was punished, Brooke. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. <laughs> it, it was like, don't ask anything, accept everything, question nothing. And if you show curiosity that's, you know, not compliant, if you're not compliant and you don't conform, then you're a rebel and a renegade and, and um, you know. Pain in everyone's bum. Yeah. <laughs> and the reality is, you know, I, I believe that institutions and the media and, and pretty much um, – Churches and government and and any kind of institution, their their um, ultimate interest is to keep people from questioning. Their their ultimate interest is to keep us dumb and conformed. And and so by in by doing, um, they control and they can they can tr- control the outcome. And so I feel like we're in this shifting tide in the world where people are starting to question everything. And so that's ultimately going to see kind of some crumbling of institutions that perhaps um, perhaps don't have a long shelf life. Yeah, which, which really kind of neatly brings me into your, the slow school, which I'd really like to talk to you a bit about because mm. I think that, you know, the, the – institution for want of a better word of business and how business is done is it's not working necessarily anymore and what you're doing at the slow school is taking a completely different and unconventional approach to helping people build businesses that are people centered and purpose centered and and prosperous but Mm -hmm. you're doing it in in just a completely different way so can you tell me a bit about I guess what what drove you to start the school and and you know the people that you're aiming to to help yeah well I um I was actually walking around my local park a couple of years ago and I was um I'd been a uh sideline observer of a lot of the business schools that are out there in the marketplace you know the ones that are teaching you know five steps to seven figures and all Mm. of that kind of stuff and I was actually quite really annoyed and angry about a lot of them because anger has a beautiful purpose. We all know that it, it serves to 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 uh, create change. But I was observing that and I was thinking that we need business schools that are not teaching that the purpose of business is to make money. Mm. You know, yes, that's one of the objectives of business, but it can't be the primary motivation. And I felt that a lot of the business schools were te- were teaching micro capitalist views of big capital, what's happening in big capitalism, and um, a lot of competition and separation and very little co creation and true true collaboration. Which I believe, you know, I probably sway more to the cooperative kind of um, true share economy mm-hmm. um, world. So I was noticing that we were teaching businesses the opposite of what's going to sustain, what I believe is going to sustain business and capitalism. So I thought, right, I was walking around the park and I thought, right, I'm going to start a business school that teaches the opposite of everything that we get, we've been taught about business. And by the time I'd walked around the park, I'd come up with a name and within two days I'd rung about five friends and said, hey, what do you think? And I, the next week I organised a dinner and we sat down and we talked about it. We had slow dinners and we still have them now two years later. And I just talked about, well, what are the things in business that are important, um, just as the things that are important in a family home or in a community. And they are things like love and they are things like connection and belonging and uh, compassion and and all of those things. And they are things that are fundamentally not taught in business. Mm. You know, most people would go to their work day 
um, without any of those boxes ticked. And then they come home and try and cultivate any kind of love or compassion they can muster to deliver to their family. And and it was just so that was sort of how it started. And um, it's been a very haphazard two-year journey, I can tell you, but we've finally got got a bit of a an, an idea of the vision and where we're going. Yeah, which is just fantastic. I mean, I think there's such a disconnect, as you, you said, between what we do and what we're encouraged to do at work, the decisions that we make, the things that we put at the centre of our days and our choices and our actions, and then what we would say we value as a person, you know, in, with our family or our friends or our community. And the fact that those two things don't often or always meet up is, is really disconcerting, I think, because people are making choices that have very big impacts on other people's lives based on a completely different set of values. Mm. And, mm. you know, I think that's one of my big issues with the idea of work-life balance as well. It's, you know, drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is my work person and this is my life person, mm. kind of gives people sometimes the, the freedom or the leeway to make choices that they wouldn't make in life, but they make in work because there's this distinction. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, um, there's a well-known Gallup poll uh, that uh, measured employee engagement and satisfaction at work. And the findings were more globally, more than 70% of people are disengaged at work. Mm. And what that means is that they're having a negative impact on others at work and on the organisation and not to mention their own lives. And so what it would seem is that people are making a dying instead of a living at work. Oh, and it's so ironic that we say, oh, I've got to go out and make a living. Well, actually, we're making money, but at the same time, we're making a dying. Mm. <laughs> and we're dying a little bit each every day, every day. And obviously, when that's happening, considering we spend up to a third of our life at work, if we're taking that dying back into our home, which very often does happen, it has a massive impact on everyone that's in our life, family, friends, etc. And so what can, I mean, this, this obviously is the, at the heart of what you're doing with the Slow School of Business is to start to build companies where those things, those values are part of the fabric of the business. Mm. Uh, you know, and I think that that really, that's the only way that it's going to actually kind of happen, isn't it? When when you're able to make the same decisions based on the same values in all areas of your life. Mm. I guess, I mean, my husband and I started our own business at the beginning of this year. And it's really interesting to see the, not even necessarily the tension, because I think we had a really good understanding of our purpose and our values before we started it. But I can see how people are really torn between making decisions based on good business and making decisions based on being a good person. So how mm. how do you start to get people to reconcile those two things and, and bring them together and actually figure out what it is that is important to them? I think there's a model that I use um, around purpose, which is um, it's a Japanese term called ikigai, and um, it means reason for being. It, there's four circles in this model and uh, the first circle is what are you good at, which is your skills and strengths. Uh, the second circle is what do you love, so that's the things that you're really passionate about. The third circle is what does the world need and the fourth circle is what you can be paid for. Mm. So 
the majority of people are probably in the what you can be paid for, for circle and what you are good at circle. So they're using their strengths and their skills to create a profession. So they have a profession where they're being paid well for those skills. But they probably haven't, in, and they're probably kind of dying a little bit inside because they haven't been able to integrate their passions and their loves or what the world needs actually into their work. And this might be going off on a bit of a tangent from what you're asking, but our challenge is to reconnect with those two circles of what we love and what, we, what the world needs and to kind of integrate them into our paid work at the same time. So for me, it's about... It's not an either-or, it's, it's an and-and that we have to, and you know, the Japanese believe that a wholehearted life requires a lengthy exploration of all four of those circles. Right. And, you know, it will mean, yes, we have to put food on the table, so it might mean that we have to have paid work outside of creating that business or that other thing that we're really passionate about until it can be made financially viable. So it's not an either or it's always an and, 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 and it's about compromise. You know, we all, you know, as, as we said, we have to pay the bills, but it's about the time. And I think that's the other thing is that we have very unrealistic expectations about when our business will truly start to turn a profit. Mm. You know, we, we think that we'll start a business this week and then within six months it'll, you know, be feeding us. I've yet to meet someone that, that has happened for. <laughs> I think, though, that that's, that would be a real relief to people listening to hear you say it's not an either or but rather an and and because I think we, we hear these, these, these truths, we come to these realisations and we, we recognise that we want to make changes but all we see is the looming, you know, massive shift that needs to happen and that's just to, to say to someone, well, just quit your job, you know, start a business, live off, off something you're passionate about and it's good for the world, great. But the reality is that we either have rent or a mortgage, we have food to pay, we've yeah. got school fees to cover, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's it's just not possible. And I think when people come in and with, with that kind of maybe very general approach, it it's it's not helpful because, you yeah. know, the majority of yeah. us can't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's really – and it also speaks to just the whole, you know, the whole – philosophy I guess of making changes in life in general yeah. and taking them mm. one step at a time rather mm. than yeah. a wholesale shift so with you personally as you as you said you you flicked the slow switch uh in 2010 did you everything that you did that do in life you know everything that you kind of approached did it change immediately or was there a real process for you as well no, it's a, it, it was a real process and it continues to be. I just want to, um, can I just backtrack and reflect on something that Please. you were saying yeah. about um, the either or and the and? and? Absolutely. One of the big things in, in, business, in, the, in the startup entrepreneurial world is I think there's this utopian dream that we can all be startups and mm-hmm. create prosperous, profitable businesses in no time and we're sold this kind of myth that entrepreneurship is for everyone Mm. and the first thing that I would say is that in terms of becoming a purpose-driven leader is that no matter if you're working in an organization or in a job that you don't like um, it's your responsibility to bring purpose to work every day and to be a leader 
and to adopt your beliefs and your values and what you stand for and to bring them into the workplace to create a shift and a movement from within. I think we need people within organisations, healing organisations. And so it, it is still possible to bring that to your work and not be a victim, I guess, of the system or people that we work with. So I'm always encouraging people to start right where they are and not kind of uh, think that escaping into entrepreneurship is going to be the holy grail or the answer. I think that's so important. As you say, I guess so often it's presented as the best option for everyone and that's not necessarily going to be the case. And I think, again, that's another really encouraging thing that you shared because we don't, you don't need to turn around and make this enormous shift or cut you know, in, in yeah. your life. You can start today with some kind of small shift or the, you, you change your mindset, you, know, you change your mm. approach or your attitude. What mm. sort of things could you encourage people or would you encourage people to do if they're – you know, happy enough working where they are, but they're seeing that the organisation that they're in is not necessarily purpose-driven or values-based. What could someone Mm. do to start, you know, bringing about change from themselves? Yeah, well, I think for many of us, I, I, I wrote this blog the other day called The Golden Buddha, and it's a true story. In 1957, some Thai monks were relocating a monastery and they were relocating a massive clay Buddha And as they were relocating it, a crack occurred in the clay and one of the monks noticed this golden light emanating from the crack. And then he chipped away and chipped away and discovered that it was a golden Buddha. And apparently a couple of centuries before, some Burmese warlords had come, um, the, the monks at the time had news that some Burmese warlords were coming and they covered the statue in, in clay so it wouldn't be um, stolen and it wasn't discovered until 200 years later. And um, I don't know if your listeners have heard this story before but I think that that's a really important um, story because every one of us has a golden Buddha inside of us and what's happened over time is the clay has been laid upon us layer upon layer by our own limiting self-beliefs or through our education or our parentage or our family, you know, ancestry, our culture, etc., etc. And so the goal is to, or the objective is to chip away at that clay and rediscover our true essence. And, and I always think that it's found, our, our essence is found in our past. Our golden Buddha is, is not out there, it's not somewhere in the future, it's actually already within us, and there will be signs when you, um, Kalal Gibran said, when you are born, your work is placed in your heart. So, I think it's starting from within and exploring your past and reconnecting with that reason that you went into that job, why you studied what you did, you know, where did time, where did you lose track of all time? What are the jobs that you've had in the past that really excited you? Um, very often, our perspective on our work is coloured by our managers and by the people around us, not necessarily the task that we're performing. Right. So yeah, so so I think I think it's reconnecting with our history and with those things where we really did love our work and um, where we chose where we made some 
decisions. So it's not outside of us, it's it's somewhere there in the past. And it's just reconnecting, I guess, with your initial purpose or your initial why or your initial reasons for being there. And mm-hmm. I guess over time, as you say, over time it's, co- it's covered up, you know, it's covered up by by managerial stuff that we have to deal with or organizational things or just tiredness or disillusionment uh, or disengagement. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I really, really like that. I think that's such a, a helpful kind of way of, yeah. of putting it because otherwise it's maybe a bit terrifying. Yeah. I'd look at a natural reaction is to, you know, whenever we're in pain is to run away from it um, instead of uh, surrender to it and acknowledge it because until we surrender and accept that like before I went to France until we accept that we're not where we want to be then we can't actually get the courage that we need to make a change so I think the first thing is kind of surrendering surrendering to the fact that this isn't where you want to be right now whether that's your work or your relationships or whatever mm, I think uh, it sort of ties pretty closely to an idea that I talk about a lot when people ask me about you know how to slow down and how to simplify life I think they expect a really practical kind of response like start Mm -hmm. by decluttering your drawers or something like that but my my advice actually is something a lot less hands-on and a lot more maybe frightening in a way but it's to figure out why you want to change uh, you know, and slow down and what it is that you want to put at the center of your life. Because once, and this is what I've found personally, and just from talking to a whole heap of people about the process, once you know why, why it is you want to slow down, why it is you want to make a change, you have these this kind of foundation from which you can start to make decisions and and choices and actions or inactions and saying yes and saying no becomes simpler, if not necessarily easier, because you have this reason, you know, and I think that that sort of ties in quite a lot with your, your mm. the, the notion of purpose that you talk about, both in terms of a business, but then also in terms of just people, you know, and, and the way we live and why we live that way. Yeah, I, look, I, um, I think that the more we connect with ourselves and the less we push away, you know, I think no, no one likes to feel sad, uncomfortable, depressed, you know, all of those what we call negative emotions. Mm. And we're too quick to label them as negative emotions because I think that pain is the greatest gift on the other side of that pain. Um, Growth, pain is the best precedence for growth. Mm. And so um, most of us, have been taught that crying, you know, all of these negative, so-called negative emotions are, we're taught that we shouldn't have them, that they're not worthy, that we should always be positive and always be happy. And, yeah, well, we do want that, but we have to really embrace these so-called negative emotions and really deeply understand that they serve a very uh, uh, important purpose. I guess, I mean, I know countless people, myself included, who have gone through some really difficult stages, really painful or, you know, incredibly unpleasant to to, to live through, but on the other side of them have, have been some of the best changes or the biggest, most positive shifts mm. in my life, you know, and I think that that's, uh, even just in, in terms of this podcast, the vast majority of people I speak to have come to maybe a more self-aware way of living 
as a result of some kind of pain, you know, mm. and I think that this idea of sort of sitting with your feelings and feeling them completely is really valuable in that mm. way because it's not pleasant, but, you know, and like you say, no one, no one loves the idea of being sad or depressed or, you know, feeling mm. anxious or anything like that, but there are things to be learnt from that. I think they're often a sign, that's so true, Brooke, I think they're a sign that you're not living in accordance with your, with your purpose. Oh, yeah. They're, they're actually a sign, you know, uh, last year I, uh, my son, I've had a bit of a topsy-turvy year this year myself. My son, who's 18, I've been a single mother for quite some time and my son, who's 18, um, went to university and went to live at college so I became an empty, you know, found up myself with an empty nest and a large home in South Yarra with a sizable mortgage and I was thinking, oh, I'm looking down the barrel of, paying this mortgage off forever, um, I ended up selling my home earlier this year and I've always been very, very passionate about building community and being a part of a community. I sold my home and it was a very painful experience and, you know, for the first time in many, many years I went to live with a girlfriend, I rented with her, still with her at the moment and I was like, where am I going to live next? I've got no idea. It was really uncomfortable and... Um, at the same time, I came across this new um, uh, housing development being built in Clifton Hill in Melbourne, and it's um, an intentional community of 65 dwellings, and the whole premise is around um, the community. So it's it's not so much around the building, it's around the people that inhabit these buildings and how do we create a community of people that care for each other, that cook together, that skill share, that um, share resources, etc. And so, whilst going through that difficult pain of change, um, it actually brought me closer to the things that I believe in, and being a part of a community mm. is is really one of them. So, I mean, the perfect kind of example of living. You're really aware of your purpose and the things that you value, and then made decisions, even though they weren't necessarily easy or pain-free made decisions to take you closer to that and I think that that's like that's the one of the the most valuable things in knowing that and going through the the process of understanding your purpose mm. or your you know your mm. values you want to live your life yeah. based on yeah that's and, and in the process I was able to eliminate any debt wow so you know that's a big big value and belief for me that um debt for me is not something that I want to have Mm. And I had been um, using debt to live, whether that's home loan, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it really kind of struck me that freedom for me was, and, and freedom for me is very high value, meant that I needed to have no debt. Right. So I downsized and my, my apartment is very small footprint. It's very eco-friendly. Um, the whole complex is being planted in native plant. It's about 200 metres from the river. So, but, but I saw this place and even six months prior to that, I hadn't decided to sell my home. So even if I had seen this house, I wouldn't have been in a position to make that transition. And what happened through the sale of that house and the pain and everything that there was surrounding it and also my son leaving home, I was able to establish a new path to take that was more aligned with what was really important to me, which is community and living lightly. So, yeah, sometimes big 
big um, changes actually activate um, your curiosity and your your propensity to step even more closely towards your values. Mm. And I think also it, it's indicative of the fact that we don't get it, we don't nail it first time out. You know, we, we realize that we want to make a change and we kind of shift and pivot our life towards that. But there's a process, like an ongoing process, like we were talking about before. There's no necessarily not there's not necessarily a you know a full stop at the end of the sentence it's it's just this constant evolution and iteration and sort of a deepening understanding of who we are and what what we want out of life and what's going to help us live a really fulfilling kind of life you know and I think Mm -hmm. if we can let go of the having to know all the answers and having to get it right first time yeah there's a lot of freedom in that too Mm. yeah definitely I, I um I suspect that uh, a lot of people grapple with what they truly stand for and what they believe in. Yeah. Um, and what they love and what they're passionate about. And, and I think that one of the uh, tasks that I often ask my coaching clients to do is to write out I believe statements. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. And mm. um, to really connect with those things they truly, really believe in. And then to build our designed future or our perspective of what we want out of life on our values and our beliefs. And and they are, you know, to me, that's they're also the golden Buddha. You know, the golden Buddha are the things that we stand for. And and sadly I think today we don't know what we stand for because life is just so frantic and it's yeah. so fast and uh, we're always being sold stuff. You know, we get over 3,000 marketing and advertising messages in our face a day from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep. And so we're sort of bombarded by the media, by social media, by, you know, employer expectations, etc., etc. And we kind of let extrinsic forces dictate our path. And we, we're totally disconnected from our intrinsic motivations and our intrinsic beliefs and values. And so, therefore, we, we feel really uncomfortable because um, we just really don't know what it is we stand for and, therefore, therefore, what we want or how we need to behave in order to kind of get what we want. So, so yeah, that requires a lot of very deep exploration. And, and journaling is one, one tool that... For me, I do. I think I read, heard you in one of your other podcasts say that you do your morning pages. Yeah, um, that's been my um, ticket to freedom. Has been the morning pages, or my ticket, or my path to to doing work that I really believe in. Um, has been, you know, the morning pages, the journaling. It's it is truly like an amazing exercise to do, isn't it? I mean, to start to feel some of that that knotted up kind of thought start to unravel (laughs) over time and the things that I learnt about myself as well I'm not sure if you had the same experience but the things that I've learnt about myself by just being Mm. completely uncensored and not even you know like not forcing anything but just to kind of start to explore that is Mm. incredible it's such a powerful thing and for anyone who who maybe doesn't know exactly what we're talking about but in um, Julia Cameron's book The Artist's Way she talks about practicing morning pages which is three pages of of longhand you know pen and pen and pencil kind of um pen on paper kind of writing of 
essentially the first thing you do as you get out of, out of bed in the morning is to let everything out onto the page without thinking about it, without questioning it, just letting it all out for, for three pages. And to the point where if you don't have anything to write, you, you literally write, I have nothing to write, I have nothing to write. And really quickly, your brain will, will tell you that, in fact, yes, you do have something to write. Now, Brooke, I've got a question. Do yeah. you ever reread them? I try really hard not to. <laughs> I try really hard not to. I don't, um, I don't in the moment ever yeah but occasionally yeah, yeah, yeah. it's in this it's in a book so occasionally I will flick back but it's not um it's not necessarily comfortable reading <laughs> Do you? Oh, look, never <laughs> look I've been doing them ever since I went to France and so I've got a whole box of just books of filled journals and um, I, I've stacked them in a box in storage and I've actually taped the box up and I've put a big notice on the front of it and it says, "If I should, if to my son Billy or my family, if I should die, please do not read these journals and respect <laughs> my wishes and burn this box. <laughs> I think that's really I, wise. <laughs> Because I had this, but I couldn't quite bring myself to throw them away. But I had this just like real inclination that my family would think I was an absolute fruitcake if they actually read it. And and also, obviously, I write personal stuff about, you know, my family and even my son. You know, all those times he was a bit hard to deal with, etc., etc. And so I couldn't bring myself to throw them away. But I also couldn't, you know, uh, had to put a caveat on them being read. So if I do die, I hope they respect my wishes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's brilliant. I really do. <laughs> uh, I mean, but I think otherwise, if you maybe if you were concerned that someone would ever come by and read them one time, you wouldn't as be as honest either in it. And uh, I think that that's part of the beauty of it is just being as you know, open and brutally honest as, as you need to be in the moment. Yeah. And, and look, they're very uncomfortable when I first, I remember when I first started them, I, I just felt so childish, you know, like I was, everything I was writing was just baby babble and it was just like self-indulgent and, and you know, I was really thought I was being very, very critical of myself. Um, and the more I do them, the more I use them in a in a, in a very intentional way as well. Like I think there is um, value in just writing any crap that comes up into mm -hmm. your head. But I also now I, I use the practice of I have three pages and the first page I write about my intention for the day. So what is it that I want to um, achieve for the day? Um, and then the second page is a page of gratitude. So what are the, what's the things that I'm grateful for? And the third page, I write about my kind of grander vision and my intention for um, my life and, um, but more importantly, my contribution to the world. So it's a bit sort of um, visionary. So the, mm -hmm. the first page is what am I going to do today is my promise to myself for the day. The second page is gratitude and the third page is kind of more visionary but um, um and it's helpful because I think sometimes you can just get trapped in sort of the negative and find you've written three pages yeah. of really toxic stuff that probably hasn't been helpful so so I do think there is some science and art to actually using the pages wisely 
Yeah, I think that that's actually a really important point to make because otherwise it can be. And I've had days, don't get me wrong, where that's all it is. It's just like a, you know, a letting out of whatever needs to come out. But um, I think, yeah, interesting that you say that because I think that that's sort of a, a, a transition that I've made over the years without necessarily being entirely aware of it. You know, it felt, like you say, at first it felt very much like a teenage girl's journal, you know, um, of, yeah. of like snarkiness and nastiness and almost all like self, self-reflected, not, not outward. But, um, yeah, over time it becomes really apparent that that's not all that helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Carolyn, it, it's been just an absolute pleasure uh, and, you know, I have no doubt that we'll have more conversations in the future. But uh, thank you so much for your time today and, uh, yeah, and for joining us and, and sharing a bit about your, your story. And now people can learn more about the Slow School business at slowschool.com.au. And then you've got your own website, which is carolyntate.com.au. Uh, uh, actually, Carolyn Tate. T-A-T-E, Carolyn with an L-Y-N, uh, dot co, actually. Dot co, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I will have a right. link to that, to, to both your websites um, and social media and things like that in the show notes. But, yeah, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Brooke. I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed um, speaking with you and sharing um, ideas and concepts, and I really look forward to sharing some more with you around kind of conscious capitalism and where the world of business is is really heading brilliant i can't wait thanks brooke thank you bye Bye.